Please remain standing as we read the Lord's Word this morning. Uh, Jeff is going to lead us through Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If you have your Bibles available, please follow with me. Begin in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Maybe seated. Well, good morning. When uh, I was growing up, my uh, grandparents had this lake house near Livingston, Texas, and uh, and so my whole uh, entire family, my uh, mom's siblings, and all of their spouses, and all of their kids, uh, and my family would get together uh, out there on a regular basis. We would spend most Easter's out there. Uh, a lot of times we'd spend Christmas. Uh, we would probably be out there four or five times as a year, uh, a year as kind of an extended family. In addition to three, four, or five times a year uh, that we would go with my uh, immediate family. Uh, and I remember, I always thought it would be really cool to be out there with no adults, right? So you're out there at the, the lake house, and there's certain things you can't do. It's frowned upon to tump the boat over in the lake uh, by the adults. And so I thought, man, it would be so great if we could be out here without any sort of adult supervision whatsoever. And for some reason, my parents thought, once I graduated high school, I was mature enough uh, to handle that responsibility. Let me just give you a hint. I was not. Uh, but uh, the summer after I graduated from high school, I was uh, maybe two weeks or so away from turning 18, and my parents allowed uh, me to go out there with some friends for the first time without any uh, adults. And so there were four of us, all uh, between 17 and 18 uh, years old, and, uh, and so we just purchased uh, what 17, 18-year-old boys purchase. We just purchased like a whole lot of cans of chili. And that was it. That was our entire plan for eating and so forth. And uh, so we go out there. We're having fun. We're tumping boats in the middle of the lake and then swimming back with no uh, 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 life vests or whatever. Uh, we're taking up rusty cans and throwing them in the lake to such an extent that I still have a scar on my finger uh, from that. I'm surprised I didn't get tetanus or something like that. Um, but the kind of the highlight of the trip was towards the uh, end of the night, we kind of all gathered together on the bottom floor of the lake house, and we began to tell each other these sort of uh, scary stories, right? We tell such scary stories, or we're just uh, such scaredy cat uh, boys, uh, that we decide this three-bedroom uh, house that we're all, instead of utilizing those bedrooms, the four of us are going to sleep in about an eight-by-eight square uh, feet section of the living room because we're so terrified uh, of all of the different serial killers that we've uh, named uh, in our scary story. And, uh, and so we wake up the next morning really early because there's a realtor who's knocking on the door and the house is filthy. And so we take uh, a, a few moments to kind of straighten up the best we can and then we have to leave. 
And, uh, and so uh, we take off, go back home, and a week later, I get a call from my grandfather. And it's the first and only time I ever heard him angry, like actually angry. Why was he angry? Uh, because in cleaning the house, we did not actually clean the house. There was, uh, there was a pot of chili. Uh, again, this is what we ate. So there's a pot of chili that we just apparently left on the stove. And uh, the stove was at least turned off, so it didn't burn down the place or something like that. But there was just old chili sitting there for an entire week until my grandfather showed up. Uh, we didn't take the trash out, so there was uh, trash that was just sitting there again for a week as the sun is beating down on it uh, because it's the, the summer. And, uh, and so my grandfather had had to spend hours cleaning up uh, after us. The reason that I tell this story is because in a lot of ways this is kind of like our text this morning. You see, uh, one of the main reasons that we have to have this conversation about this particular topic As you could tell from the text that uh, Wade read, it's a fairly controversial subject called church discipline. And one of the reasons that we have to do it is because we're cleaning up somebody else's mess a number of times. The same way that my grandfather had to clean up after us, even though it wasn't his mess, there is this prevalence within evangelicalism of misapplying or misinterpreting or just flat out denying or ignoring this text. And so, uh, as a result, most churches uh, don't teach on this at all. Those that do teach on it might or might not practice this. And those that do practice it, most of them don't practice it well. And so, as a result, we have a responsibility and an opportunity to come in and to speak to this subject that the Lord is passionate about because he has put it in his word. We don't have the opportunity to ignore it because it might grate upon us, it might challenge us, it might push a little, it might be controversial, it might be countercultural. We don't have the opportunity to just say, we're going to ignore that, we're going to neglect that, we're going to set that aside. And so we have an opportunity and a responsibility to clean up after the mess that might have been made by others. You might have come from a church tradition that completely ignored this. Or you might have come from a church tradition that was very heavy-handed in the way that they applied this and was not loving. Whatever your background, though, is that we want to center around the Word this morning. Another reason that I want to uh, talk about it is because, like that chili left on the stove, sin that's left in the church will begin to fester. It will begin to disrupt the entire operation of the church. So as we talked about last week, we are in this series as we're kind of taking a break uh, from our book studies. We've been studying the book of Mark for the past year and a half or so. We're about to spend the next uh, seven, eight months walking through the book of Ephesians. But before then, we wanted to just take a few weeks and dedicate this season to studying the topic of ecclesiology. That is, who are we? Who are we as the church? Who are we as the body of Christ? We looked at that metaphor last week and saw this imagery of us as mutually dependent members of a body. We're diverse. We're diverse in our gifts. We're diverse in our age. We're diverse maybe in skin color, socioeconomic status, whatever it might be. And yet God has woven us together in this beautiful tapestry that is the body of Christ such that We have a responsibility toward one another, and what we're talking about this morning is one of those responsibilities that we have toward one another. But as we begin, I just want to confront what is going to be the natural response of the flesh. 
Every one of us in this room, whether you've been a believer for 50 years or you've been a believer for a matter of a couple of days, every one of us still has this principle that remains in us, this lingering residue of who we used to be before Christ. We call that the flesh. We call that the old man. We call that a sin nature. And that response, the response of sin, the response of the flesh to a text like today is going to say things like, how dare you? How unloving is this? How unaccepting is this? How intolerant is this? How bigoted is this? And so what I want to do is I want to talk, uh, before we even get into the text, before we even spend time praying for our time this morning, talking about what is the purpose of this topic? What is the purpose of church discipline? And so I want to give you three different purposes, the reasons that we, uh, it's important for us to rally around and to embrace, not merely to understand, but to embrace this topic as something that is good and right for us as a body. The first one is for the glory of God. The glory of God. All things exist for the glory of God. And whenever we talk about this particular topic, there are texts that talk about God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. He refuses to allow sin to go unchallenged within his body. And so for the glory of God, we have a responsibility to respond to sin within the context of the local church. Uh, the second one is for the good of the church. The, the Bible talks about, in the context of discipline, the Bible talks about sin as a little leaven that's leavening the whole lump. In other words, little sins don't remain little sins. They grow and they grow and they grow and they fester and they linger, and they infect the entire body over time. So one of the reasons that we want to do this is not only for the glory of God, but also for the good of the body as a whole. And then lastly, the one that's most difficult probably for us to accept is it's for the good of the individual. God loves you too much to allow you to remain in your sin. God allows you too much to allow you to continue to sin against him to continue to allow this infection within the body. Using that analogy of last week of the body, imagine there is a cancer within the body. The most loving thing that a doctor can do is to help you remove that, whether through chemo or through surgery or whatever it might be. The most loving thing that he can do is actually hurt you. It's painful to go through a surgery. It's Extremely painful to go through chemo, as I uh, have been told. And yet, that's motivated by love in the same way God has called us as a church to love each other enough that we're willing to hurt each other, that we might be redeemed and restored and experience repentance. So as we begin this morning, I want to begin just for a time of prayer. I ask you to just take a moment and pray for yourself. Maybe already you know this is going to be challenging. You've seen this applied poorly in the past, and you come in with some presuppositions, you come in with some hurt, and you know you're going to need a profound work of the Spirit if you're going to be able to pay attention at all. Next, I'd ask just that you would pray for the person next to you. Ask the Lord would give them grace as they are a member of the same body.
And then lastly, would you pray for me? So, Father, would you help us this morning? Open our eyes to see not only what your word says, but why it's good. Why your commands are a guardrail to prevent us from tumbling off into an abyss of destruction. So help us this morning, Lord, as we battle our flesh, as we battle our culture, maybe even our experiences. Pray these things because you care about this topic more than we do. And you use your word. And so would you help us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. It's speaking here, and he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So first, let's, let's kind of orient ourselves within this particular text so that we can have an idea of the context. We have an idea of what's going on in the surrounding context of what it is that uh, Jesus is talking about here in uh, Matthew 18. He's been talking about a proper response to sin and the responsibility to forgive within uh, the body. In verses 7 through 9, he commands this really aggressive vigilance against sin in ourselves. When we were preaching through uh, the book of Mark, we saw this same text applied. That if your sin, if your hand causes you to sin, that you cut it off. You take this aggressive response to it so that it doesn't infect the entire uh, body. Then in verses 10 through 14, we see this loving response of a shepherd to straying sheep. That when a sheep strays away, the shepherd doesn't say, well, good for it, or so long, or bye. No, there, there is this loving response where the shepherd goes out and follows after the sheep and brings them back because he's motivated by love and his responsibility in our text today, we again see this aggressive response to sin within the body, not within our own body, but within the corporate body, that is the church, and the responsibility that we have toward each other in that. And then in the next section, if we were to continue reading, there's this parable of the unforgiving servant and the reminder of the responsibility that we have to forgive as we have been forgiven. So you see within this chapter unfolding this sort of rhythm back and forth between an aggressive response to sin and then surrounding someone with love. An aggressive response to sin and then surrounding someone with forgiveness, welcoming them back, hoping and praying for repentance. The text begins by saying, if your brother sins against you. So there's a few things that I want to note here. Uh, first, we're talking about those who would be considered a brother or sister spiritually. Obviously, no, we're not talking about biological brothers or sisters, but we're talking about spiritual brothers or sisters, those who would profess to be believers. Zach, next week we'll talk a little bit more about why this is an important distinction uh, for us to make. We're not talking about an unbeliever. Next week we'll look at the same sort of idea and see the Apostle Paul explicitly differentiate between the way that we are to react to sin in unbelievers versus those who are 
profess to be believers. And, uh, and so this process that we're talking about of church discipline is only to be applied within the context of those who profess to be members of the body of Christ, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Second, note that we're talking about sin. We're not talking about just a difference of opinion. We're not talking about preferences. We're not talking about misunderstandings. We're talking about the issue of sin. A few years after uh, I got saved, uh, I uh, was living with a, a few guys in a house, and, uh, and one of the guys uh, one day sat me down, and he had this really serious look on his face, and he said, man, I need to, I need to talk to you about something that's super serious. And so I, my, my mind is running, and I'm just, man, what in the world is this about? And he says, I need to rebuke you. I need to correct you uh, for something. And he said, I need to tell you, uh, if you don't respond well to this, uh, then I'm going to have to talk to others. And so I'm thinking, what in the world have I done? I have no idea. As he begins to talk, it uh, occurs to me that his concern with me is that I don't shut the shower curtain. Not while I'm in the shower. I certainly certainly shut it then. But uh, I grew up with a brother and a sister. We all shared the same bathroom. And so when I get out of the, the, the shower, I would just leave the shower curtain open because somebody else is going to get in right after me. Same way throughout college. I always had multiple roommates. We shared the bathroom. And so I would just, I got into this habit of leaving the shower court curtain open once I got out of the shower. For him, growing up in whatever crazy context he grew up in, this is not a matter of preference. This is not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of fact. I have sinned against him. He used the word sin, and he uh, told me this will have to escalate. That's not what this text is about. This text is not anything about that. We're talking about the language in which Paul is going to apply these sorts of things are things uh, like uh, gross uh, moral failure. We'll see that, uh, that next week. Gross moral failure, gross theological uh, differences, and so forth. Not you have a difference in regards to some of the things related to eschatology or the end times or that kind of stuff. We're not going to discipline you because you have a different view on what the millennium means in Revelation 20 or something. We're talking about things like you deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or in the context of Paul's writing, you deny the resurrection. You say Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. These are the kinds of things that we're talking about. So gross moral issues, uh, gross theological uh, divisions and so forth. And the last one is just this sort of divisive, schismatic uh, feeling or, uh, or actions within the body. Someone who is, uh, who is sowing swords, uh, uh, seeds of division within the body. That's the kind of thing uh, that we're talking about. And again, bear in mind what Jesus has just said in verses 7 through 9. In verses 7 through 9, he's just given the analogy of sin within an individual person and said, take an aggressive response to it. Why? Because it's serious. Sin is a very serious thing. We tend to think of it as something that is trivial, something that is trifling, and yet biblically, it's treason. And not minor treason, not low treason, it's high treason against the highest authority that you could possibly imagine. And so the seriousness of the symptom is going to demand this aggressive uh, response, similar to the way that the seriousness of cancer would demand a serious response of chemo or surgery 
or whatever it might be. The seriousness of sin demands a serious response. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So he says, if your brother sins, and then it has this little phrase, against you. So let me ask you this question. Does this process, what we're talking about today, does this only apply when someone directly sins against you? Someone commits adultery by sleeping with your husband or your wife. Someone sets fire to your house. Someone steals your car, whatever it might be. Certainly we would say it applies in those cases, but is that the only time that it applies? Do you have to be directly involved as the person who has sinned against in order to initiate this process? And for a couple of reasons, I don't think that that is the case. For a couple of reasons, I think it's intended to be applied beyond just sins in which you are personally sinned against. And so let me give you a couple of those reasons. First, uh, just a sort of textual issue. Many of the early and well-respected manuscripts, the the Greek manuscripts and so forth, uh, when they have this verse, they don't even have this phrase, uh, against you. Uh, In fact, if you're reading from the uh, NASB, or the NET, which are different translations, or if you're reading from a later edition of the NIV, they leave this out. And it just says, if your brother sins, go and show him uh, his fault. So it's possible that the phrase is not even original to the text. If that kind of weirds you out, if you've never heard anything like that before, let me just encourage you. We did an entire hour teaching on this subject called textual criticism, where we deal with the presence of uh, different variants between different manuscripts Uh, in our tradition. So let me go encourage you just to go back and listen to that. It's available online in our theological equipping class section. Again, it's called textual criticism. But even if the phrase is original, even if the phrase uh, is intended to be original for us, I would say that you still would apply this passage beyond just a direct uh, offense against you in cases where you're not personally uh, directly affected Why? Because all sin has some sort of corporate aspect to it. Borrowing kind of the imagery from last week, what you do or don't do affects the rest of the body. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Let me give you an example of that. If you cut off a finger, does that just affect the finger? No, it affects the hand, and it affects the rest of the body. You lose enough blood, the rest of the body is forever going to be affected as a result of that. Every sin that we commit, in some sense, has this corporate effect if we are truly united as the body of Christ. Imagine if you know that uh, Jack, Jack is cheating on Jill with John's wife, and you simply say, oh, well, I feel for Jill. I feel for John, but there's nothing I can do because Jack isn't sleeping with my wife. How unloving would that be? How profoundly unloving would it be for you to simply say, because I'm not directly affected, I'm not going to go and to help and to encourage those who are. But I think the the strongest evidence for seeing a more general application of this text beyond just when you are personally affected is that there's a preponderance of other texts in the, Bibles that going, in the Bible that is going to, to make a similar sort of point. Consider James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. says this, My brothers, if, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in light of all these reasons, I think that we would see that this principle uh, is certainly applicable if you're directly sinned against, but there is a more universal, general uh, prescription for us. What does he say next? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Notice in verse 12 of the same chapter, this is the same sort of response that the shepherd has to a sheep that has gone astray. The shepherd goes, don't wait, be proactive, take the initiative. This mirrors what Jesus has previously said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 23 through 24, he says this, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There's this command for us to be active, this command for us to be proactive, this command for us to take the initiative. Passivity will kill the body, the corporate body and the individual member as well. Just last week, one of our members went in for a brain, uh, not a brain scan, a heart scan because he was having uh, some symptoms uh, of some pain uh, and so forth. And when they got in there and did the scan, they found uh, a couple of blockages. One was about 75%, one of his arteries. The other one was 99% blocked. They literally call that a widow maker. And imagine if this brother, instead of immediately, uh, with the presence of the onset of these symptoms, imagine if he would instead have waited and just said, you know what, I'll just wait a few months. I'll wait a couple of years, whatever it might be. I'll wait till I have more symptoms been a totally different outcome. As it was, they were able to put in a stint. He's actually here today. But you might think, I'm not the one in sin. Why do I have to be inconvenienced? Why do I have to be the one who's gonna go to the person? Why do I have to initiate this, what's uh, bound to be some sort of awkward conversation? The reason is because everything we talked about last week, you remember of the body and you're compelled by love. That for you, this is a member of your body. This is your brother, this is your sister. This is someone who is trapped, this is someone who is paralyzed, this is someone who is blinded by sin. How could you not go? So it says to go and tell him his fault. That Greek word there that's translated as tell him his fault is often translated as rebuke or reprove, it literally carries the connotation of being exposed, to drag this out into the light. It's the word that's used of John the Baptist whenever he goes and he reproves or he rebukes uh, Herod for having uh, his uh, brother's wife. It's the word that's used in John 16 of the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in a believer's life. It's the word that's used in Revelation 3.19 where Uh, The Lord says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
Go and tell him his fault. Go and rebuke him, lovingly reprove him, lovingly expose his sin. And notice the scope of the conversation is between you and him alone. There will, this, there, there will be an eventual sort of escalating process here and expanding the circles of involvement. But it begins right here. It begins with privacy for the sake of this person's dignity. The point of this process is never to humiliate, but the, the point is to humble the person. So think about this, this principle of going to this person alone, going to this person in private, a one-on-one conversation. Think about the implications of that as it relates to gossip and slander. If Christ has compelled you to a private conversation with the offender, then you have no right to share that information with others. Doing so would be either gossip and or slander, depending upon whether or not such information is even true. But for some reason, the human heart inclines the first thing that we want to do, if Wade is in sin, the first thing that my heart wants to do is not to go and talk to Wade, is to go and talk to Jerry. Why? The Bible talks about gossip as this delicious morsel. There's something about it the flesh craves, the flesh loves about sharing this news with somebody else. Oftentimes, even in a form that might seem biblical and good and righteous, sharing it in the form of a prayer request. Oh, I just really want us to pray for Brother Wade. And then I share all the details and so forth. Instead of loving him enough to go and to show him uh, his fault. No offense, Wade. If he listens to you, that's the next step. If he listens to you, he might very well listen. Maybe it was a sin that's committed in ignorance, or maybe, just maybe, there's already been this growing sort of gnawing at uh, this brother's soul as he's kind of wrestled uh, with conviction from the Holy Spirit, and this will be the step that's necessary to push him back over the edge. We have that example even in the Old Testament where David has sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against Israel, he sinned against God, all of these kinds of things. Nathan goes to him and what does David do? He repents. He writes the words to Psalm 51, which we just sang. So maybe he will listen to you, but he might not. Notice it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you think that he will or that he won't. Your responsibility is the same. That we're not pragmatists. We don't look at the potential outcome and decide whether or not we're going to act upon it on the basis of what might or might not happen. We act upon something on, the, on the, the basis of God's word compelling us to do something. Whether or not we think that they will respond appropriately is absolutely irrelevant to whether or not we are compelled to go and to do this thing. We don't follow God's commands on the basis of whether or not something will work can't tell you how many times I've sat across from a husband or a wife who refuses to have a conversation with their spouse because they won't listen anyway. That's not the point. That's irrelevant. The question is, what am I called to do? What's my responsibility? What is Jesus commanded of me? Allow the Lord to work on them independently. But what's he calling you to do? Go and show him his By the way, when it says listen, if he listens to you, it doesn't just mean that he just listens. 
Like as long as they don't like put their fingers in there and go la 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 la. Like have you all, all of a sudden won your brother? That's not what it's talking about at all. When it talks about listening, if this, if this person has listened to you, it means not just that they've heard you, but they've heeded what you've said. They've seen the wisdom in it. They've begun to experience conviction. Like when a parent's voice deepens and they say, listen to me. It's all of a sudden something different. They don't just want you to hear, they want you to obey. So if he does listen, you've gained your brother. He's repented. He's been restored. If not, there is another step. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So notice the escalation and the expansion of this. There are now more people involved in the process. We've gone from private rebuke to some sort of plural rebuke now. There's more involved in this process. Depending on the circumstance, you take one or maybe two. At times, it might even need to be three. The point is that the circle should be kept small. How small? As small as is necessary to accomplish the purpose. So what's the purpose of expanding it? We see this in uh, the Old Testament in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 19 there's this, this uh, requirement that there be multiple witnesses to show that something's not just a matter of personal opinion or misunderstanding or confusion. It's sin, and it's clear enough for others to see that it is sin. It's also going to allow for there to be perhaps someone with more credibility to come into the conversation. For instance, if I'm having a conversation with a member, and I know this member has a really, really strong relationship with Mike Boss, then I'm going to invite Mike Boss in on that conversation in this second step. Why? Because he has relational uh, credibility and capital that I might not. This person might really respect Mike's uh, uh, counsel. So I'm going to bring him in as someone who has some credibility there. I'm going to do whatever it takes in this process uh, to aid in the process of accomplishing the goal of restoration. And though it's, it's preferable to have witnesses of the actual sin, that's not actually necessary. What is necessary is for there to be a witness to the process itself, that we've loved you enough to confront you, to encourage you, to call you to repentance. And again, maybe that will suffice. Maybe this person uh, will repent, but if not, the process moves forward. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So notice again this escalation from plural now to public. Notice also there's this escalation of resistance within the heart of the offender. His response is gone from does not listen to refuses to listen. Those are different words in Greek. The second word is the same as overhearing. Uh, you hear the words, but they're not intended for you, like concrete, which is sat for a period of time. So this person is hardening, which means that we, we need all the more to have sort of all hands on deck in the process of encouraging this person and stirring them up to repentance. So this person has spurned the loving counsel of not just one person, but multiple people over the span of multiple meetings. 
So now it's the responsibility of the entire church, the entire assembly to gather together for the purpose of pulling this person back towards righteousness. Think of this as this sort of tug of war that exists between sin and the church for the soul of this person caught in between. As sin is pulling, we want as many people as possible on the other end of that line pulling back towards righteousness. So this process of telling it to the church, it's not just airing dirty laundry, it's not gossip, it's restorative in hope. The idea is kind of by casting a wide net, we can catch him and turn him back into the fold. And so this, this step, the step of telling it to the church is uh, sort of multifaceted in its purpose as it serves as a warning to the body, an opportunity for anyone with relationship to call back to repentance, a protection against gossip, and it also prevents there from being some little pocket in which uh, this member can hide, some little group that will rally around him and say, ah, your sin's not that bad, whatever it might be. Again, it's all hands on deck for the purpose of this work. I, I've told the story before about uh, being in South Sudan and, uh, and, and in this uh, compound where we stay whenever we go to South Sudan, uh, it's kind of this walled community. There's a number of uh, uh, tukuls, which are our huts there within the village. And, uh, and, and so one time I'm there and I hear a bunch of guys screaming and running, which is uh, pretty rare uh, in Sudan. And all my travels, I hadn't seen that. And so I asked the translator, what's going on? And, uh, and he says, uh, they have found a cobra. And, uh, and so everybody's running. And so I said, well, I want to go. I want to see this cobra. And, uh, and so I take off running with them. We get there. Turns out it's, this, it's a baby. It's maybe a foot long uh, or so. But literally every man in the village has a hatchet. And, uh, and he is taking that or a machete or something like that and taking it and swinging it, trying to kill this, uh, this uh, snake that has made its way into some bushes. What's the idea there? The idea is it doesn't matter that it's a little snake. That little snake threatens their entire livelihood. It threatens their children. It threatens their goats and their chickens. It threatens them themselves because that snake will eventually grow up into a larger snake. And so all hands are on deck in putting to death that particular sin. That's the process of church discipline. That's how it is with sin in the church. The next step, it says, if they don't listen, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, that let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what's that mean? Here's how most people naturally sort of interpret this. If you grew up in the church, this might have been the way that you heard it taught and so forth. They kind of uh, compared it with the way that Jesus would treat uh, Gentiles and tax collectors. And you heard it taught Jesus would welcome Gentiles and tax. Jesus is a friend of sinners. So we should be friends of sinners. And we should go out and we should associate with them all the more. Jesus would hang out with Gentiles and tax collectors and so we should do the same. And I think that's the exact opposite of what the text is saying. Why do I think that it's the exact opposite. What I think is happening here is Jesus is not saying, treat Gentiles and tax collectors like I treat Gentiles and tax collectors. 
But you, a first century Jew, treat Gentiles and tax collectors the way that first century Jews do. And how would first century Jews treat a Gentile or tax collector? They wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't eat with them. Why do I think Jesus is saying that? Because that's the way that Paul is going to apply this in the process of church discipline. Zach's going to spend next week kind of fleshing some of this out. But let me give you a couple of examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13 says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Second Thessalonians chapter three says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Titus chapter three. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is similar to the Old Testament uh, process. When someone was engaged in certain types of sin, there was this command, certain types of sin, there was this command to kill the person. Other types of sin, there was this command to let this person uh, be cast out of the community, uh, community out of the covenant community. That's what's happening here in this process of church discipline. Traditionally, this has been called excommunication, to remove from the community of the church. And I say that word, just think of what happens in your heart and in your mind when you hear the word excommunication. Think about what happens there. That oftentimes there is this initial sort of innate response that that word feels harsh, and unloving, it feels punitive, it feels uh, retru- uh, retributive or something like that. It feels like it is so harsh, it feels like it is unkind, which is where we need to remember that even this is a part of the process that God has woven into the way the church is to function for the glory of God, for the good of the covenant community, and for the good of that individual it's a final attempt. It itself, casting them out, is not the end of the story. It's a final attempt by the church at large to call someone to repentance. The idea is that someone, by being cut off from community, would be so driven to despair by their solitude that they're going to be provoked into repentance. It's like a parent that sends their child into their room in order to think about what they've done. Um, Me, growing up, I was a huge introvert. So for me, that was not a punishment that was very effective. My parents learned very quickly that they needed to spank me 
or they needed to make me like mow the lawn or something like that. That was the only way I was gonna listen. You send me to my room and I'm happy, right? You send an extrovert like Tim or Zach to their room and like 30 seconds later they're crying, they're weeping and so forth. That's the general idea here that we would be so cut off from the community that we would recognize our sin, that we would repent and be brought back into the fold. So this is not a final step of the process. This is the second to final step of the process in hopes that there will be a final step that is the restoration of relationship that comes with uh, repentance. In effect, what God is doing is telling that member, you desire this. You desire to keep your sin hidden, so I'm gonna hide you. You desire to remain in the darkness, so I'm gonna put you out in the darkness for a period of time so that you might be brought back into uh, the light. And not only is the church working in this moment for the good of the person who has uh, made the offense and hopes that they will repent, but they're also protecting the body from lingering and festering sin and protecting the reputation of God. So in this moment, what the church is doing is not definitively saying, I've heard it taught like this, that when you practice church discipline and when you remove somebody, you are definitively saying they are not a believer. That's not what you're doing. I don't have the ability to see into your heart and know whether or not you're a believer. But what the church is doing in that moment is they are saying you are acting like an unbeliever and therefore we can no longer affirm that you are a believer. That's part of what membership is. Membership is this process of us hearing each other's testimony, giving uh, uh, credence to our confession of faith, and affirming each other that we are brothers and sisters. When you remove someone, it's in effect saying, I can no longer affirm that you are a, a believer in Jesus Christ, because you're certainly not acting like one. But I hope that I'm wrong, and time will tell if that is uh, the case. So what right have we to make such a decision? That's what the next few verses are about. Verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Note that little phrase there that says, shall be bound and then the little phrase, shall be loosed. If you're reading the NASB, you'll actually notice that it says, shall have been bound and shall have been loosed. I think that's a better way to translate the underlying Greek there. Shall have already happened. What's happening there? This is one of those passages just as a whole, kind of a coffee cup passage. You might have it on a coffee cup or you go to a prayer meeting or you have it on a bumper sticker or whatever it might be where two or three are gathered together so there there am I among them. But what's really happening in the context is fascinating. What's happening is Jesus is saying that the church backs up the decisions of God. The church backs up the decisions of God. As God has already declared something And the church, by enacting this process of discipline, is enforcing that declaration. Disciplining a brother for the sake of the good of the church, the good of this so-called brother, and for the glory of God. The idea is that the church is simply articulating back and applying God's word to this particular situation, this particular person, and this particular sin 
we're enforcing on earth what's been enacted in heaven. In effect, the church is kind of functioning as a jury, responding to the word of God's law, which is why we only apply this process when there's actual sin where God has already spoken, because unless God has spoken, we cannot. So that's the text in general, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. So what do we do with it? How does this play out in the real world? How would this play out here in uh, Parkway? Well, this actually has already played out uh, at Parkway a few times. Uh, it's not on the process. It's not like, uh, you know, at the end, uh, Brother Steve's going to come up for the commission and just choose someone randomly and say, let's exercise church discipline on you. There's nobody in trouble, anything like that. We want to be uh, proactive about teaching this because in the moment, there's something in our hearts that's very hard to receive this. And so we want to be, uh, take sort of preemptive a response to this particular situation. So let me give you a practical example of what, how this might hap- happen within the context of the church. Let's say some uh, member is engaged in some sort of obviously sinful uh, situation. Again, not like an open shower curtain or something. We're talking about adultery. We're talking about abuse. We're talking about uh, blatant deceit, uh, divisiveness, whatever it might be. Someone somehow learns of this sin, and so they go to them privately. There are exceptions, I think, to this. If it was a, a wife who was being abused uh, physically or something like that, we wouldn't require that she go one-on-one to her husband and rebuke him. So there are some exceptions, but in general, the rule stands that this should be a private uh, conversation between uh, the uh, offender and uh, the person who knows of the offense. Perhaps that meeting goes well and the person repents, in which case the process is over. This happens all the time in the context of uh, Parkway. And so the vast majority of you, uh, if you're members here, you've probably experienced this at some point. Uh, Maybe it wasn't even gross sin. It was just a question that somebody came to you and asked, uh, is this the case? This seemed to be out of step with your character or out of step with the biblical commands and go to them and you say, you know what, you're right. And that's the end of the process. Or maybe the person doesn't respond like that. Maybe the person just says, you know what, I'm not sure that I agree. Let me think about it some more. Then I don't think you escalated at that point. You might have a follow-up meeting with the person. But if they refuse to listen, if they uh, just simply say, you know what, I disagree. I disagree. I want to continue to engage in this affair. Or I want to continue to uh, extort uh, or commit fraud or whatever it might be then there is an escalation of the process. You bring along someone else, one or two others, potentially a staff member or an elder, depending on the circumstances. There might be, again, there might be a couple of meetings with that person over the span of a few weeks to call them to repentance. But if they refuse to listen even to that, then we would have a member meeting. And in the context of that member meeting, we would share the pertinent details And the hope would be that together as members, we would all hear this, that we would all reach out in relationship that we have with the person and call them back into uh, repentance. And maybe they would listen. Maybe they won't listen uh, to Steve and to Jerry and to Mike and to me and so forth, but maybe they'll listen to you because you've been friends with them for 20 years. And so they listen and they repent. And that's the end of the process. And we celebrate We rejoice 
over a uh, straying sheep that's been brought back into the fold. But if they don't, then there is this final step. Or again, hopefully not the final step because the hope is always still that there would be repentance. But there is this process of removing the person from fellowship. The church united saying, I can no longer affirm that you are a believer because you're certainly acting like an unbeliever. And this is where, this is where our own hearts can potentially undermine the process. At my previous church, there were a number of times where we had to enact uh, this a particular type of discipline, removing someone from fellowship after a prolonged season of engaging them and engaging them and engaging them and engaging them, writing letters, having meetings over the span of months. So there's no doubt whatsoever that they are simply choosing their sin. And then we remove them from membership and a collection of members said, you know what, we think that's harsh, we think that's unloving, so I'm gonna continue to meet them. This would be like your parents send you to your room in order to think about your sin, and then all your siblings come in there and play with you. Do you learn anything in that process? No. Are you driven to repentance? No. Do you think about your sin? No. So this is where the church has to be united in our understanding and appreciation of what it is that's going on. So as, as I close, I just I want to kind of frame the conversation, bring it back around. What's the purpose of discipline? This is something that is so countercultural in a culture that equates tolerance with love. Those two things are synonymous in our culture. You don't love me if you don't tolerate my sin. Biblically, that makes no sense whatsoever. Toleration is something very passive. It overlooks, it ignores, it denies existing realities. Love is a very active thing. It's a very proactive thing. It's a very initiating thing. It compels us. Tolerance is weak. Tolerance sees that you have cancer, but it ignores it or it belittles it. Or it simply celebrates the freedom of cells to multiply however they want. Love looks at that thing and says, this is going to hurt but I'm going to assault the body with chemo and I'm going to aggressively take a scalpel and cut out the cancer because I love you too much. So church discipline, as we talk about this, this is a hard, this is a controversial subject. It's one of the reasons we wanted to devote two weeks to it in our uh, preaching because it is so difficult. It does grate against our instincts so much. It's why that most churches don't practice it or don't practice it well or completely ignore it. But it begins really with this one thought. If you want to have this understanding of church discipline, it begins with this one sort of thought. And if we can kind of unify around this one particular belief, then the other dominoes will begin to fall into place as well. If we can just agree as a body on this premise that sin is destructive. Sin is destructive to the member It's destructive to the community. It's destructive to the glory of God. And therefore, in light of that, the most loving thing that we can do is take drastic steps to address it and to eradicate it. Not in spite of our love, but because of our love. If we can begin there, if we can begin on that one shared belief, we have an opportunity to begin to really follow after Jesus and his commands. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word and its clarity. I thank you for the way that it challenges what we expect and what we think, for the way that it compels us to consider our own lives and where they match up or don't with your word. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us. I I pray uh, for those who might have heard the sermon this morning and uh, found it to be discouraging, Lord, I pray that you would encourage their hearts, Lord, that you would help them to see the love and the grace and the kindness in this, Lord. I pray for any who might be walking in sin today, any sort of habitual, ongoing, unrepentant uh, transgression, Lord, that you would uh, even grant them fear, Lord, to repent and to turn from that sin and turn toward you in faith. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you protect us from the schemes of the enemy, protect us from the flesh and all of its designs, Lord? We're not ignorant of the way that uh, the enemy works or even the way that our own hearts work, Lord. And so would you help us pray these things because you are a good father. You give good gifts. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.